Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. What's up, Gromies? We missed y'all. Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha, and I am one of your moderators. It feels so good to be back in session, doesn't it, Mandy? Oh my gosh. Hey, Keisha. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone joining us online. Oh my gosh. It feels so good to be back. Wow. Three weeks off for summer vacation. It's almost like if the week went by and office hours didn't happen, did the week even happen? I don't know. Anyway, we're officially back and better than ever. Thanks for hanging with us. We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those to the team. I'm also here to remind you to follow us on all the socials. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. All right, but let's do this. We got y'all's crop steering questions the past few weeks. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. All right, if you're live with us here and you have any questions, type them in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we will have you either unmute yourself or one of us will ask for you. Jason is in the house holding it down solo in studio today. Jason, how you doing? Doing well. Awesome. Thanks for asking. Jason has his game face on. He's ready to go, which is good because we got hella questions. Let's go. All right. Super Cottonmouth wrote in. He's looking for us to talk about the different ways of crop steering. They wrote, most have probably heard about controlled stress through timing your irrigations, but what are some other ways that we can steer our plants? I heard on the last episode using lower pH to push plants more vegetatively. Very interesting. Love the show. Thanks for spreading the knowledge. All right. What do you think, Jason? Yeah. So, I mean, First off, even usually before I start talking about irrigation for crop steering, we'll talk about environmental factors for crop steering. And uh, basically, obviously, crop steering is getting an intentional response from the plant by modifying the parameters that are influencing its growth. So typically what we're doing is uh, altering things like temperature, relative humidity, um, and then irrigation amounts, uh, letting drybacks build up EC in the substrate. What those are doing is changing the hormone balance in the plant as far as what is it trying to grow? Are we trying to grow stalks, stems, and leaves plant infrastructure in order to give it the ability to grow as much cannabis as possible? Are we inducing uh, you know, a little lower osmotic differential between the root zone and the plant in order to uh, convince it to be more re reproductive, grow buds, uh, reduce node spacing, that type of thing. So uh, you know, other than irrigation, yeah, environment would be probably definitely number one. We always want a good environment. Um, that being said, typically when we're not doing any nighttime differentials, that's going to be a little bit more vegetative. If we've got a little bit warmer temperatures, that's usually going to be slightly more vegetative. Um, those type of impacts can make a significant difference as far as how the plant responds. Um, irrigation is probably the one that we always hit on quite a bit, uh, mostly because one, we have the Terrace 12, which gives us great insight on the ability to fine tune the, the steering used by irrigation. And so that's really looking at how do we manipulate our shot frequency, duration, uh, irrigation window, dryback window, and our EC levels. Uh, so based on kind of runoff and feed EC in order to get the response that we want. Um, as far as pH, uh, probably one that you know, it's a little bit trickier to deal with. Usually when we're talking about pH, it's um, what are the um, nutrient solubilities at different pHs. So usually if we're going down in pH, we're going to see a little bit higher nitrogen solubility for the plant. And that's typically going to be a more vegetative response. And that's why we talk about as we 
get towards the end of the cycle, sometimes we'll let our pH rise, uh, you know, up to a couple um, tenths of, uh, of pH in order to reduce the nitrogen solubility. Uh, a lot of times we're also talking about um, reducing your amount of calcium nitrate that's going in there in your nutrient feed. And really what we're doing, trying to do is just reduce the amounts of uh, carbohydrates that are built and start to, to let the carbo, um, or excuse me, chlorophyll content decrease. Jason, thank you so much for that overview. But like basically the long and the short of it is these crop steering techniques like the pH one that you described is an opportunity for growers to really kind of take control and see and, and uh, uh, steer towards a particular outcome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I mentioned them in the um, series that I did simply because uh, usually we need to make sure that we've got the first step dialed in. So I mean, before we get into irrigation crop steering, we need to make sure we've got environmental factors on par for what we're trying to dictate that plant to do. Um, and a lot of times we'll actually use them to offset each other a little bit. So like when we're doing our generative stacking, say, you know, weeks one, two, three, and four of flower or weeks two, three, four of flower, um, we're actually going to have a slightly more vegetative environment and we'll push really hard generative with the irrigation to one, we're trying to maximize the amount of plant growth we're getting, but we're also trying to get that hormone in order to get uh, bud sites and, and start the development of its reproductive um, parts of that plant. So yeah, definitely make sure that environment is uh, on par with where we want to be. Um, make sure your irrigation is on par and then you can start to, to get super fancy with things like making sure your pH is, is exactly what you need it to be. Fantastic. That was a great question. Super cotton mouth. Thank you for that. Keep us posted on what's going on. Mandy, what's happening on YouTube? Yeah, you know, it's popping over there already. Poppy Grows has a question. I'm harvesting tomorrow. How much defoliation do you feel is good to leave on? How many leaves uh, do you feel is good to leave on there? And how much should I defoliate? Um, yeah, let's just start there. He had two questions. We'll start with that. Yeah. So for, for me, this one's mostly just a logistics question, uh, making sure that we have proper airflow in the drying room, make sure that our drying room has capacity to hold the amount of plant material that we're putting in. If it doesn't, then we're going to need to increase the amount of deleafing that we're doing. Um, most of us do find that it's actually easier to clean up the plants after we're dried. Um, and so typically what, you know, if, if I've got a good dry room, we'll just do minimal amount of families. We'll just try to get the, the, you know, bulk green matter off of the plant and out of the way so that harvesting is easier, cleaner, and we can make sure that the drying consistency is uh, what we're looking for. Awesome. Thanks for that. He had also, also had a question. Um, is it better to break up the branches and hang it? Do you have any advice for that? I like hanging plants uh, for the drying room. Uh, you know, if you have good spacing, you can hang whole plant. If uh, your rack system isn't quite as developed as, as something like that, then you might need to trim it down. And, and a lot of times you'll cut them just, just beyond the node so that you get kind of a hook um, and you can hang them up on a trellis in the dry room. Awesome. Perfect. And he had one more question about drying. So also for drying and processing, do you start at 60, 60 or like 45 humidity and 60 degree temperatures, or are there certain parameters you would want to do for certain, for the certain like first few days of dry? Do you have any uh, advice for him? Yeah. So, you know, usually we're trying to hold 60, 60 in the, the dry room. That being said, as we put in 
a pretty large mass of, of wet weight uh, plants. I mean, you know, most of the weight of a, a plant is going to be water weight. Um, sometimes our HVAC systems can't handle that big of input of water into the room. And so, you know, if, if you don't have the HVAC capacity to hold 6060, it's where you can start to look at dry room time series data and say, hey, you know, for the first day and a half or maybe two days or the first day that our plants are in the dry room, we just can't hold 6060. And that's usually the only time that I'll say, all right, let's actually have the dry room at say 45% humidity, um, just to give it a little bit better chance to, to not be at 90% humidity as our plants are going in there. Awesome. Handled like a champ. We got a question from B-Town. Is there a specific time frame to reach field capacity in veg and gen? So they're currently in veg. I have a 2% shot every 20 minutes, nine times a day to reach field capacity in one gallon pots, no P2s, week two of veg from clones. In gin, I cut it in half by doubling the shot size. Let me know if you want me to ask for more clarification. Uh, maybe just run that, that last line like, one more time on me. Okay, so their actual question is, is there a specific time frame to reach field capacity in veg and gen? Currently, I'm in veg. I have a 2% shot every 20 minutes, nine times a day to reach field capacity in one-gallon pots, no P2s. Week two of veg from clones. In gin, I cut in half by doubling the shot size. Um, sure. So kind of just talking about uh, answer the easy question and digging into his details. Uh, for getting to field capacity, I like to get to field capacity usually within about an hour of my first irrigation. Um, that being said, it sounds like you're kind of going for a striated or, or a strategic, um, vegetative where you're not getting up to that field capacity. Uh, it, you know, it may not make a huge difference, but I personally would rather get up to field capacity and then do P2s for those second hours. So if you're, uh, nine shots, um, one every 20 minutes, that's three hours of irrigation window. Uh, I would prefer to get up to saturation within that first hour and then just add some P2s in order to uh, maintain that field capacity. Uh, you know, if that's not possible on your irrigation controller, then you're probably doing the next best thing. Uh, as far as, you know, cutting that irrigation window in half in order to be more uh, generative, um, perfect. That's great. You know, you're getting to field capacity in an hour and a half. You're almost at that, that window that I really like to be at. And uh, those plants are going to be responding, um, with a fairly reasonable crop steering. Uh, you know, one, one thing that I would just keep an eye on is in a one gallon planter, you might, um, you might be starting to run out of field capacity or excuse me, out of water content in the bigger plant stages. Uh, so if your drybacks are, are getting too significant, then you might have to accidentally, um, add some, supplemental shots to keep you from running out of water um, and specifically with with rock wool so if you know if, i guess if you said you're one gallon you're probably not in rock wool but we do encounter quite often the six by sixes um where people are just you know getting too low in water content because their plants are are fairly substantial you know a really large plant can use up to um usually around half to three quarters of a gallon of water a day and you know if we're in a, a one gallon substrate then you know we're looking at fairly substantial drybacks up to say 50%. If our field capacity is at 65%, that means in cocoa, we're down to maybe 15% um, before the next irrigation. And that's, that's probably a little lower than I'd really like to go even in cocoa. 
Awesome. Thanks for that. And thanks for that question, B-Town. Um, oh, we're getting the questions over in our live chat. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Mikey actually just posted a comment here, I think, in response to that last uh, question here. wrote, uh, I like 90 minutes after lights on for a 90-minute irrigation window. We follow up with a second gen, a second set of gen feeds 2.5 hours before lights off for longer plants slash higher drybacks. So it's all about that resource sharing. Thank you, Mikey. All right. We got a question here from Josh. Josh, I'm going to read your first one. And then if you need to, if you want to unmute and clarify, feel free. Um, thank you for, for what he wrote. Uh, I have a few questions. First off, appreciate you guys. The amount of knowledge you guys share is insane. We appreciate you for being here. Question one. Best ways to quickly drive DLA tolerance with minimal stress. Obviously, as we go higher with TPFD, EC, CO2 needs to match, but is there any tips or any tricks to get to your maximum PPFD levels quicker? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's going to be a lot that plays in here. One, probably the first thing that I'd see people mistake um, commonly is not getting their EC levels up when they start to charge their um, PPFD levels. Uh, we've really got to make sure that those plants have uh, enough nutrition available when we start kickstarting their metabolism, if you will, with more energy. Obviously, all those photons are activating a chemical reaction of photosynthesis in the plant. We need to make sure that they they have the the right molecules, the right nutrients available to keep up with how much energy that is going into that plant. So that's probably one of the most common ones that I see. Um, another practice would be make sure that we have uh, timely and uh, appropriate amount of deleafing. Um, so then again, you know, if, if we've got a little bit less leaf material, we're probably going to be able to have a little bit higher PPFD a little bit faster simply because that, that plant's got less opportunity to absorb. Um, and there always is the amount where, hey, if we stepped up too big, those cells just haven't been um, acclimated to the amount of light that's hitting them, even on a smaller surface area. So those are a couple options to just make sure that you're checking if you're going to get aggressive with PPFD levels. And uh, as I always talk about, you know, one of the most common mistakes is uh, not upping your PPFD levels when you're coming out of a 18-6 veg cycle and really comes down to, hey, if we have... 30% or 33% less hours of light coming in, then we need to make sure that our levels are that much higher so that our DLI stays constant. Love that breakdown. Jason loves lighting. So we love that question, Josh. All right. Second question here. Josh is looking for a target VPD range for nighttime bulking. And do you raise that value as you see swell and get deeper into bulking? Um, you know, nighttime VPD isn't quite as important as daytime VPD. We want to make sure that uh, the environment while the plant is transpiring is, is absolutely as optimal as um, physically possible in the facility. So, you know, nighttime VPDs, as usually as long as we're not in a, in a danger zone, we're going to be fairly happy. So uh, going to be a wider range than I would say for, for daytime VPDs. But, you know, usually if we're in that, say, um, you know, 0.9 to 1.3, uh, maybe 0.9 to 1.5. If you've got, uh, some humidification or dehumidification issues in, um, in there during the, the nighttime. So definitely a little bit less tight of range than for daytime VPDs. Thank you so much, Jason, Jason, Josh, if you have any other thoughts or questions, drop them in the chat, but uh, I'm going to send it over to you for YouTube, right, Mandy? Yeah, we got a question come in about drought stress. So hydric stress. Hey, I learned a new word today. Um, hydric stress during week seven. What do you guys think? I prefer not to uh, 
stress plants. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about irrigation strategies, it, it, drought stress is kind of, uh, it's something that we do in, in outdoor agriculture as far as, uh, the fact that usually we're in a, a substrate where we're looking at matrix potentials rather than readily available water contents. Um, so if we look at the matrix potential, even at low water contents in soilless medias like rock wool and cocoa, um, those matrix potentials are actually still very high. And so typically the plants aren't going to feel, uh, ir- what we would traditionally consider irrigation stressor in most hydroponic situations. Um, so when we're running week seven, we're looking at some type of ripening activities. And, uh, usually what we're going to do is more generative irrigation, um, so may, maybe seeing field capacities up there, if we're in rock wool, let's say 65%, and we'll see our drybacks down to probably, you know, 40% if we're doing a great job. Um, and then something in cocoa, if you're in a, a more chunky cocoa, your field capacity might be there at 45%, and then we'll push them down to say, you know, 20, 25% water content. And it, usually at any of those amounts um, of water content, we're not going to necessarily be inducing a irrigation drought stress. Um, so typically I like to, you know, focus more on what my osmotic differential is as far as what types of, um, levers we'll use a Seth term in here, what kind of levers I have to pull, uh, for crop steering. Awesome. What a great discussion. We also had another question over on YouTube. Do you guys practice dimming the lights as you approach harvest? If, when you do start to dim the lights, do you have a par target? Thanks. So I personally um, don't necessarily do dimming towards the, the, the harvest time. Uh, you know, really trying to get the most development out of these plants as possible. And that does you know, include an amount of um, energy required for the composition of the trichomes and uh, terpenes that we're trying to get. Uh, obviously, if we're running into some HVAC issues, then you might want to turn those lights down so that we're not volatizing the, the terpenes on there and, and losing some some nose and profile. Um, yeah, but, but my, I, my personally, I, I don't usually turn it down. Awesome. Great notes for growers. Diane had a question. What's the highest PWEC you guys recommend to stay at in at stretch in full saturation and what and right before watering? Basically, what's the parameters we should stay for in stretch or aim for? Um, I mean, so stretch is usually like a plant response. So typically we'll be doing generative stacking in, in what uh what the plant is uh during for its life cycle, what what is we say it's stretching, right? So maybe the first either two to four weeks is what most strains are going to be stretching for. And that's usually when we're actually pushing generative uh, irrigations. And so, you know, field capacities, depending on the media, we're looking at say 45% for chunkier cocoa and usually say 65, 70% for rock wool. Um, you know, during generative, we want drybacks in that 20 to 30% if we can hit that. So if we've got a big plant and appropriate sized media, that'll keep us in the safe zones of uh, making sure our, substrate properties are maintained and that we're getting a rapid growth. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Um, I think that's it for our questions over on YouTube for the second. So I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. Thank you so much, Mandy. Oh my gosh, the conversations are on and popping. We have a whole discussion going on over here talking about the danger zone during nighttime bulking. I'd love to see all that conversation. All right, moving on. Dave Rice submitted a question here. They wanted to know, for office hours, could you dive into runoff a bit? 
Prococo, do you aim for a certain percentage of runoff based on volume during the different gen bulk phases? Do you look for the substrate EC to wash down, rise a bit on the graph by a certain value? Are you looking to push until runoff is in a specific target range for pH, EC, et cetera? So sounds like a good time for an overview, yeah? Yeah, I love it. So, um, you know, runoff is going to be something that we're using to manipulate based on the other parameters that are going on with the plant and our feed nutrition. Um, I personally, if everything else is set up right, then I personally try not to have too much runoff. I like to have just enough runoff in order to take the runoff measurements that I need. So looking at pH and um, sometimes EC if I'm concerned. And what basically I'll do is if I need my root zone EC to start stacking, I'll have as minimal of runoff as possible in order to still get those measurements. Um, and then, you know, sometimes during bulking, if I'm trying to lower my EC, I'll push just a little bit more runoff so that it balances more towards the feed EC level. Wonderful. Great overview. All right. We're going to keep them on a popping on YouTube, right, Mandy? Yeah. Poppy Gross has a question. Have you spoken about leaf tissue analysis? Can you go more in depth about how we can get this done? And also, thanks for the feedback. Uh, awesome questions today. Oh, thanks, Poppy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, leaf tissue analysis are a fairly reasonably cost, easy way to get advanced analytics on nutrient composition and what your plants are using as preferential. Um, that being said, you know, if you're just wanting to regularly document it, uh, a great way to learn more about your strains is what they might be eating versus others. If you're using it for a troubleshooting um, type of activity, then a lot of times you may not be sending in leaf tissue analysis until you see pH fluctuations that are unacceptable. So it kind of comes just down to what, um, how much energy and money do you want to put into uh, doing an awesome job documenting a strain? Maybe you don't have that many strains and you're just looking to optimize each of them, you're monocropping. Um, if you are running into things that you think are a deficiency or, uh, in, in excess, as far as specific nutrients, maybe you're trying a new, uh, nutrient line and you want to compare it against leaf tissue analysis of another nutrient line that you have experience with, um, great way to get insights onto what that, what that plant's absorbing from the substrate. Awesome. So a few considerations, but overall, a really cool thing to help you get to understand your cultivars a little better. We love it. Um, I think that's it for the questions on YouTube. So I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. And I uh, didn't, I missed Mikey's comment here when we were talking about runoff. He posted, keeping runoff low saves those nutrient and labor dollars down. Well, that's important. Um, oh, and he just dropped a question in the chat. Mikey, I'm going to read it. If you want to unmute and add anything to it, feel free. Writes, what parameters are recommended for clone environment, preferred rooting substrate? What do you think, Jason? You know, the, there's a, a lot of great ways to grow, grow clones. Um, I've been extremely impressed with things like aero cloners. Um, never really had bad luck with rock wool or, or some of the other um, newer synthetic materials that are available. Uh, what is it like? Uh, riot cubes and, and all of that. Um, definitely seen really good success for it. I mean, the most thing, most important thing that we're doing is uh, making sure that our light levels are acceptable for the clones and that we are monitoring water content, um, not over irrigating those clones. Uh, over irrigation can be a fairly good way to stagnate your roots and slow clone growth. Um, sterilization is super important in the cloning environment. Um, maintaining uh, higher humidities, keeping that VPD low, 
all extremely important things for optimizing clone growth. Um, so, uh, you know, as far as which ones work the best, it's going to come down to what are you transplanting into? Um, you know, which, what's your media? So a lot of times if we're going into cocoa, you might have the option of running an arrow cloner. Um, they're a fairly inexpensive way to make sure you get explosive root growth. Um, and then again, if you're going into uh, Rockwell, maybe you're into starter cubes, then, you know, start with your Rockwell clone plugs. Uh, I think probably one of the most important things for me is trying to stay consistent with what media type that I am using. So if I am cloning into Rockwell, I try to be in Rockwell. If I'm cloning into, um, uh, you know, a, a more naturally produced product, then I might be going into something like Cocoa. Fantastic. All right. Josh just posted this question. I love this question. You can only pick one substrate to grow cannabis for the rest of time. What do you choose and why, Jason? Uh, I, I would choose cocoa personally, um, just because it gives me a few more flexibilities to not be perfect on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, I, I, that being said, I, I love rock wool. Uh, it just doesn't quite give me the, the enough enough flexibility as far as uh, growing environments so if if i have to grow in one material for the rest of time i'm probably gonna be growing in greenhouses for some of that time and in greenhouses i, I definitely prefer cocoa mikey totally agrees all right mandy what's going on with uh over on youtube yeah diane wrote in why do people lower EC in the end when actually higher PWEC is more generative? Um, yeah. Do you have any advice for him? I do. So, you know, when we're looking at ripening, it's probably one of the most difficult stages to advise people on simply because things are going to start getting a little bit wild. Um, you got people that are so used to flushing and believing in it and sorry, I said it, but uh, that they're a little bit, a little bit more resistant to some of the, higher ECs that I suggest for, uh, for running during ripening. And then you know, another thing to think about is that time series data. So if we're pushing a generative strategy, even if I lower my EC to three quarters, um, I'm going to have times that times during the day where that substrate EC is rising fairly significantly high. Right. And, and so we kind of have to think about, all right, when we talk about lowering ECs in ripening, we're talking about the input EC, um, and if I'm doing a short irrigation window, that just means that it's pushing my substrate EC down a little bit when I irrigate. But for the rest of the day, we're going to see a pretty sharp rise typically in that EC. So it, it, it's definitely a, a, one of our one of our teammates the other day. He was asking, he's like, "Hey man, like, is, is ripening usually kind of look like a mess in the grass?" And I was like, "It it can be definitely a, a lot more." Uh, complex than the rest of the cycles. The rest of the cycles we're looking for very regular um, interactions between water content and EC. And then usually towards ripening, we're going to start to see those, those nominal ECs, those low ECs drop down as we're um, possibly reducing nutrient content for five days or seven days, and then allowing for those drybacks to push that EC way up. So um, great question. And, you know, as we also talk about is like, uh, Lowering our EC is going to depend on what our nutrient composition is. If we're modifying our nutrient composition towards the end, we may not want to lower it quite as much. Um, so typically I recommend, you know, going to about 
if you're if you're not modifying your nutrient composition, being around half strength DC um, and tapering it down to half strength DC during the ripening phase. If you are modifying the nutrient composition, I usually talk about being at say around three quarters um, level EC for your feed ECs and going from there. That's great advice. And that was a great question, Diane. Thanks for that. We had another question come in over on YouTube. Alex DeGreat wants to know, I like that name. We recently got an order of cocoa with only 45% WHC instead of the 60% WHC. We ended up having to run with the 46% WHC. What's some advice you might have for someone using 45% WHC versus 60%? Uh, just keep an eye on your drybacks. Uh, so if you know we're one gallon cocoa and a 60%, um, so your volumetric water holding capacity, I think is what he's talking about there. That's what we're talking about field capacity. So when we're irrigating, that's how much water this substrate can hold before the rest of that water is going to be just runoff. And, uh, and so in a one gallon, uh, 60% would be 0.6 gallons of water that it can hold. Um, whereas, um, 40% or 45% water holding capacity is only going to be 0.4, 0.45 gallons of water, which, um, that's a fairly significant difference. Uh, so usually if I'm in a smaller media, I absolutely need to be in something that can hold more water content just because I'm already stretching the limits of the amount of water that I can hold in there in order to still effectively crop steer. Uh, in some of the bigger medias, a lot of times I like to be at a slightly lower water holding capacity simply because it allows me for, um, allows me for the ability to really have bigger, bigger changes in water content. Awesome. I hope you guys wrote that down. Um, I'm glad I get the recording. I get to have all these notes later. Um, yeah, so I think that's it for the questions on YouTube for now. Back over to you, Keisha, for Instagram questions. Thank you, Mandy. All right. There are a couple here that were really good related to pests and pathogens. So I thought, let's let's talk about these. So Chief of Keith, great handle, wrote in, your online page has some great info about powdery mildew. It outlined that powdery mildew can't survive without a living host. How long after the plant is hung, dried, and packaged can it still spread? Uh, we do a lot of packaging for other companies and are taking in dried flour all the time. Just to gauge risk on getting PM from bringing, it, bringing in bulk flour and packaging it in-house. Huge thanks, you guys are legends. What advice can we give the chief of Keefe? Hmm, that, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, obviously when, when product is dried, uh, we're drying it to a specific amount so that, uh, molds, mildews, other passages can't grow on that product. Um, that being said, there's usually going to be spores in almost everywhere. You know, even some of the cleanest facilities, you'll have some amount of spores that are, uh, in that environment. And so, um, yeah, there definitely could be spores in there. The The key is, is just making sure that, hey, we've got healthy plants that have reasonably thick cell walls. Um, so optimizing plant health is a good way to um, make sure you're not, not running into those, making sure that environments aren't conductive um, or conducive for uh, molds and mildew growth. Um, so those are, those are really kind of the two, two best ways to prevent the spread of the growth. Um, however, um, you know, the reality is, is let's try and be as clean as possible to reduce the spore load, the total amount of spores that could be, um, turning into growth. Uh, but, but the reality is, is in you know, almost everywhere, there's going to be some amount of spores. It's just the goal of reducing how many can be in a growable environment. 
Yeah, that's a great question. We actually, on our website, we have a checklist, um, a six-step framework for increasing product quality. We talk about that in the beginning. You definitely want to know your source. There's so many considerations uh, with regard to pests and pathogens. And then Mikey also posted, uh, dried flour has a dominant version of anything it had when live. So good luck out there, growers. All right, (laughs) Mandy, sending it over to you. Thanks, Keisha. Um, John has a question. I'm about a third of the way through flour in dealing with significant fungus gnat issues. Have been since uh, have been dealing with it this since the start. Is this something I need to squash completely, or should I just let it ride? Yeah. So I mean, fungus gnats are are definitely a a nuisance. Um, when you're that far into flour, you're going to be starting to run out of options as far as uh, eliminating them from from the grow cycle. Um, so yeah, the best thing you can do is think about what we can do going forward to eliminate that as a, as an issue. Um, you know, good cleaning in the room for the next round is going to be the first step. Um, proactive sprays to prevent uh, an outbreak of um, fungus gnats is going to be probably your next step. And uh, as I was talking about uh, plant health, that's really one of the best ways to help enable a plant's defense, uh, against that type of stuff. And so, you know, making sure that you've got some type of maybe a silica additive in your, um, nutrient line that, that can help increase the, uh, resistance that the cell walls have for, um, any of that type of stuff and making sure that you've got a really healthy root zone is also going to help this kind of thing. So, um, checking your dissolved oxygen, making sure that those roots are, are getting fresh nutrients and oxygen, uh, on a regular basis. So daily irrigations, make sure you have the appropriately sized substrate so that it's not always holding water. Um, those are kind of just the baseline of, of getting to um, a place where you're less likely to have an outbreak of those. That's great advice. Thank you for that. Diane had a question. Most most people raise VPD at 1.5, and that means faster drybacks, and they're forced to water more. And that means more vegetative cues. What's going to happen if I finish my plants at 1.0 VPD? Yeah, so I, I think I think went over this a few episodes ago, is and that is you know towards the end of the cycle, um, you know, we always recommend being at one to one or excuse me one point two to one point four during the ripening phase, and mostly that's just to help reduce the chance of mold and mildews uh, developing. So we're going for a little bit more dry environment simply because we've got substantial bud mass that is fairly wet, and so we're actually reducing the amount of humidity in the environment just to try and keep those from being quite that wet and having a, a, a microclimate around the bud that could be susceptible to molds and mildew growth. Um, that being said, yeah, uh, 1.2 to my knowledge is really where I want to be. If I'm not scared of molds, mildews, if I have really good airflow in the room, tight HVAC control, um, possibly I'm growing, uh, resistant strains, then I, I do prefer to be at one, 1.2. Um, if you want, if you're at one, probably fairly similar results. Awesome. Love that. Um, And then to the question about fungus nets earlier, Mikey has some advice here. Sticky tape is great if you're um, already that far along. Thanks for the knowledge sharing, Mikey. Uh, That is it for, oh, we actually just got another question on YouTube. Alex wants to know, will 45% water holding content, is that right, Jason? Yeah, water holding capacity. Water holding capacity. Okay, well, 45% water holding capacity, cocoa, yield less than 60% cocoa, assuming both are one-gallon pots. 
it it depends how they're irrigated. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm in a smaller plant, I can still probably crop steer with either of those. Um, I, I, I personally try to grow a little bit larger plants and that's where I, that's why I recommended, you know, a higher water holding capacity for a small substrate, like a one gallon. Um, as, as far as the yield goes, it's, there's so many other factors in there. Um, if things are irrigated, right. And it's appropriate size plant, the yield's going to be the same. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I think that's it for YouTube for now. So I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Mikey wrote milliliter of water applied per day equals grams of plant material fed and developed. Yes. We're doing some math. Mikey, anything else you want to add to that? Just drop an equations in the chat. <laughs> All right. I'm going to keep uh, on just going. The, uh, the water capacity of the cube is a little less important than the actual physical number of milliliters you're supplying that plant every day. That's it. Thank you, Mikey. So much good resource sharing. All right. Got another question related to pests. So plant a farmer wrote in, Hey guys, I'm using one gallon, 60% water content cocoa bags. I had to do a flush after root drench for gnats and I'm having trouble stacking back up the EC inside the medium. It doesn't build over 2.6 EC with my GrowLink sensor readings. I'm uh, feeding my plants at 3.0 EC. I tried giving my plants smaller shots, but still not getting there. It's my second time using cocoa bags. bags. What would you guys recommend? Should I raise my EC to 4.5 to try to stack and return to my normal feeding at 3.0 EC after it's back off up? I saw a little bit of deficiencies after EC went down. So now I'm having, having trouble stacking it back up. What advice would you give? And if I need to read something out about these again, I can. Yeah. Um, probably the first thing that I would do would just be question the accuracy of uh, some of the sensor readings that you're getting in there. Um, you know, just make sure that you are validating the equipment that you're using because um, it might be steering you in a bad direction. Uh, you want to make sure that you're working off good information so that you can make good decisions. And uh, to answer the, the, you know, the feed ratios, um, usually when uh, I'm working with HPS grow rooms, we'll be in that three to 3.5 on a reputable two-part salts, um, typically for LED rooms will be at the, say, three, five to four row for a uh, reputable two-part salt and appropriate environment, appropriate um, light levels, CO2 levels, and um, irrigation practices. So uh, if you have a lot of runoff, you could try decreasing your runoff and see if that brings the EC up. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if your EC at, at 3.0 is just a little bit too low for how much plant nutrition that they need, then, uh, then up it a little bit. Good luck out there, plant a farmer. All right. It seems like cocoa is becoming the theme of the show. So a lot of validating love for cocoa over here. And then Mikey just posted in the chat a question. Do you prefer piss or strand cocoa in your bags or cubes? Uh, it really depends on the size of the substrate that I'm using. Um, it, you know, I mean, some manufacturers out there offer both. Um, some of them will be one or the other with the products that they offer. Usually I'm just looking for uh, a high quality, low, um, low salt. Um, so typically inland type of cocoa, if, if I can get that. And, uh, and if I'm in a smaller substrate, maybe just a little bit too small for what I ideally for what, how big a plants I'm running, then I'll, I'll do the, the strand, the smaller pith, the less chunky cocoa, uh, coffee ground cocoa, if you will. 
Uh, and then if I'm in, you know, say a two gallon or, or a media that's uh, appropriately sized for the size of plants that I'm running, then uh, it, it's much less important as far as um, the quality of, or the, the, not the quality, the um, consistency of those chunks. And I think there's actually a few more recent manufacturers that are, are doing some, um, some striated blends to try and get those water tables a little bit higher in the substrate. I love it. Thank you, Mikey, for that question. All right. Mandy, sending it back to you for YouTube. Awesome. We had a question come in. What would be the best temperature inside rock wool? I see 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Am I in the danger zone? My water temperature is 40, uh, 74 Fahrenheit. Uh, that's a, definitely a little bit higher than I prefer. I usually like to see my, my irrigations. Um, so at least the temperature in my tanks. Um, or my source to be in that, say, 68 degree range, 67, 68 degrees. Um, the reason that being a little bit colder, water is going to be able to hold more dissolved oxygen. And so that's definitely um, a good thing. You know, having dissolved oxygen in our feed is very vital for, for plant growth. We can have a little bit of hypochlorous acid injected in there that'll help keep those dissolved oxygen levels up and the cleanliness in the lines as well. Um, definitely higher than I would prefer. Uh, sometimes you just, you just run out of opportunities. You know, if we've got long feed lines to go from a batch tank or injection system into the rooms, the, that, the irrigation water is going to naturally warm up. Uh, you know, if those irrigation lines are uh, holding water for a long time, uh, you know, maybe our first irrigation or two is going to be at the temperature of the facility. Um, so always going to be challenges with that, uh, so hitting the ideal is really easy for me to sit here in a studio and say um, how you actually do that. It's going to come down to what your water source is, how are you holding it or delivering it, um, and then uh, you know what type of effect are you seeing on the plants. Wow, you really got to consider everything in your system. That's great advice. Um, we did get a question in our live chat, so I'm going to pass it back to Keisha for that. Thank you, Mandy. All right, Daniel's on with us today. Daniel, if you want to unmute yourself, you're welcome to add, do that and add to this, but I'll read your question. Crop steering seems to be all about causing controlled stress to achieve desired plant behavior. It strikes me that we are missing a method to reliably quantify the levels of stress we are causing to the plants. Lately, I've been reading about how large-scale AG applications will use multispectral and thermal camera data to measure variables like crop water stress and stomatal conductance over large field crops. Are you familiar with these stress variables? Would this be useful in indoor ag? Love that. Um, yeah, very cool question. I personally um, try not to stress plants. Uh, I, I think that when we're doing crop steering and in hydroponics, sometimes the term stress is uh, inc incorrectly delivered, uh, occasionally even here from people within our own company. And what, what it comes down to is, is what I was talking about earlier at the water content levels that we're keeping um, hydroponic plants, there's really not going to be much uh, drought stress or irrigation stress being applied. And the reason that is, is because when we're looking at matrix potential, which is the amount of vacuum that a root has to apply in order to pull water from a substrate, uh, they're always usually pretty high matrix potentials, even at lower water contents in a cocoa or a rock wool situation. Um, when we have a different type of uh, substrate, say we're out in the, the wheat field, um, or in your cannabis field, if you will, uh, a lot of times those matrix potentials are going to be dropping significantly faster at, at higher water contents. And that's where you'll see drought stressors occur. And in traditional ag, drought stressors are a great way for them to crop steer their plants. 
um, mostly because they have less control over ECs and some of the other variables that we're fortunate enough in indoor ag and, and controlled greenhouse ag to um, be able to turn those dials. So I, th I think we have a lot better options that don't stress the plant and allow for optimum production and optimum quality uh, and expression of these genetics in these plants. Um, as far as some of those technologies go, yeah, you're looking at like NDVIs. Um, that was probably one of the first ones that I started looking at as far as traditional ag stuff goes. Uh, there are a couple of cool companies out there that do uh, indoor cameras and stuff that will let you see um, leaf temperatures on a big scale. Um, some of those uh, red green ratios that we're looking at as far as signaling plant um, responses. They're definitely on the more advanced side of things. Um, and I, I've got a partner that, that uses some of this equipment and they can see some really cool stuff on a big scale. Um, as far as to model conductance. Yeah, we, we actually offer, um, a sensor for looking at a small sample of model conductance on a live plant. Um, and, and taking some of that information is a great way to learn about how to improve your environment. Uh, as, as far as, as a large scale for using for troubleshooting purposes, uh, definitely a little bit more challenging to evaluate. Daniel, thank you so much for that question. Um, if you have anything you want to add, drop it in the chat. Let's keep talking about it. Sending it over to you for YouTube. Thanks, Mandy. Awesome. Jason's just tearing through these. All right, I got another one for you. Shredder wants to know, what's the largest pot you would try to use indoors and still be able to crop steer appropriately? Um, it, you know, if you're growing absolute monsters inside, I, you know, three gallon pot would be usually plenty of substrate in order to, you know, be able to irrigate it every day and, and, and go from there. So, um, you know, you usually when I, when I talk, I'll be like, yeah, two gallons, my favorite simply because it allows me to irrigate every day and grow a very large plant. So I get the controllability, uh, you know, if you're getting, getting huge, then the three gallons going to be able to support a, you know, eight foot tall plant a little bit better. Um, and maybe if you're getting super wild, you might need a little, little bit bigger, bigger pot. But, uh, I think it's getting a little bit more towards the, the outdoor world where we have, you know, 2000 micromoles of, of, um, PPFD coming straight from the sun and the hills of Humboldt or something like that. That's great advice. Um, I recently bought a plant, uh, a pot to replant my monstera in, and I thought a five gallon would be appropriate and it's way too big. That is like so much soil. So, um, yeah, I wrote that down just now, Jason. Um, we got a question from Josh, which do you prefer hypochlorous acid or zero tall 2.0 peroxides? You know, I, they, they've both been all right. I, I, I like hypochlorous acid a little bit more at this point um i don't know specifically why i wish i was a chemist and i could tell you what what happens and why i've seen the results i've seen with it um but either or is gonna be a lot better than nothing just use them at the appropriate ratios um so do a test see which what works better for for your setup awesome so at least we have options out there growers all right back over to you keisha Thank you, Mandy. All right, Ian dropped a question here in the chat. In episode 70, Seth mentioned some of those P2 shots are actually encourage your plant to drink more and more, causing you to end with a lower water content. We're struggling with high overnight dryback in one gallon cocoa bulk phase and VPD of one to 1.15. I changed our irrigation to end with a higher water content, but we ended with a lower water content despite using more water and shots closer together. How can P2 shots encourage the plant to drink more 
and how can I control this? Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, if you're having those challenges in um, vegetative bulking, I, I would definitely be worried about the challenges that you had in, in generative um, when you're trying to stack those ECs and you had a much longer dryback window. So um, it, usually my simple answer here is get a little bit bigger substrate um, or grow smaller plants. Uh, those are going to be the, the easiest options if you already have, say, a, you know, eight, 10 hour irrigation window. Um, you're running those P2s about as long as you safely want to without starting to get into overnight irrigations. Um, those are the options you have. Ian, give it a shot. Let us know what you think. All right. Got another question here in the chat from Josh. It is a complicated lighting question. This is Jason's favorite, I think. All right. When looking at LED fixture types and considering the aggressive fall off in light levels on an inverse square log graph, oh my goodness, for the first three to four feet, do you think a higher output high bay fixture producing 1000 PPFD at the canopy will have better par number three feet into the canopy versus a six bar type fixture hung lower to the canopy, putting the same 1000 PPFD out at canopy level. That last foot of can canopy depth from two feet to three feet changes everything in a facility. This question might've broke my brain, but Jason, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm not as good at Seth as, as getting the, the simple answers and, and breakdowns of a question here, but I'll do my best. So basically on the first half of this question, we've got something like, um, you know, the uh, LED fixtures that are designed to replace our 1000 watt HPSs. So it's a, a smaller fixture with very high intense LEDs. Uh, and then the six bar type being, you know, maybe some of the um, older fluent setups or, or you know, like a, a home brew type LED situation. And uh, that's going to be more dispersed, right? So we're looking at trying to get that coverage um, directly under the bulbs. Whereas when we're coming from a, a single source, uh, we're getting that intensity dispersated uh, over an area. And that's why those are going to be more of a high bay situation that the six bar would be closer to the, the plant canopy. Uh, as far as the canopy penetration, so that's really the question is what's going to be better at getting light levels through the canopy down below? Um, typically, I, you know, my guess without knowing uh, the spectrums and or the manufacturers, um, some of that type of stuff, usually the the high bay, high intensity LEDs are going to be a little bit better at that. Um, basically, you're going to get more cross penetration. Um, so it's going to be uh, coming in at angles from some of the other high intensity lights in the room. Um, so if, you know, we're on a, a four by four grid with those lights, we're going to have some light uh, crossing over from the, the sides of those other lights. And so you're probably going to see a little bit better penetration there simply because of the uh, indoor zenith angle. Uh, zenith angle has to do with the um, the sun, but I guess we'll use it in this case to talk about the angle of the light coming off of an LED. Um, there's going to be more um, ability for that to uh, go around the leaf surfaces. So when we talk about how much light a, a leaf is capturing, uh, for those math nerds out there, think about a Gaussian surface. Uh, it's going to be capturing uh, photons coming through the surface of the leaf. And so uh, if we're going around that because we're at a less perpendicular angle from the uh, point of aspect or point of production on that the source point of that light, and hopefully we'll see a little higher quantities down below. That's kind of like, you know, light penetration in a, in an aisle, 
Like those plants are usually going to get a little bit higher light penetration lower on the plant simply because we have less blocking material from it. Wow. Thank you, Jason. That actually is very helpful for me because I don't understand any of this, but that really, really, really helped. And um, thank you for that overview. All right. We're going to keep it moving. So many questions. Love it. Um, this was a really good one. So we recently um, posted about uh, some tips on cleaning the Terrace 12. If sensor, this person wrote in, if sensor readings seem okay, should I be performing such maintenance only in between runs or should I be removing, cleaning and replacing, repositioning the sensor? during the cycle as well i try to avoid ever repositioning the sensors in um, during a cycle uh, if at all possible you really should never need to maintain the cleanliness of the sensor throughout the cycle um, only if you've got some other problems going on with irrigation that you'll usually need to see something like that uh, you know occasionally i'll get some weird readings from a sensor maybe it's not quite deep enough in the substrate maybe it's at the wrong height maybe i'm just got a dry pocket or a really chunky part in the cocoa um and, and then i'll usually go in and either stick it on the other side of the slab or the other side of the bag just for a, a reinsertion to to validate uh those readings or get a little bit better reading um, from that sensor. But yeah, usually if I uh, have a good installation from the the first time that I get those plants, those sensors installed, uh, that should be the last time that I touch those sensors until chop, till harvest time. It's all about that uniformity. Excellent. Thank you, Jason. All right. Got another question here from Advance. They submitted it on Instagram. This is about rock wool. So we're, we're moving it away from cocoa, y'all. When running rock wool, is it recommended to put it on drippers as soon as possible? Will hand water and or flood and drain and veg lead to channeling in the substrate? Currently run longer veg time, like four weeks. Um let's let's just knock out the 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 outlier in that and that is uh hand watering um if you can do a great job at hand watering um that substrate's going to maintain its its properties is you're not going to see channeling or, or dry um pockets in it um you know those hydro, hydrophobic issues that we see when when rock will gets too low in water content um that being said the labor capacity and the you know discipline and just simply being able to spend that much time irrigating uh, a lot of times it turns into a challenge. So, um, you know, that, that one is probably more susceptible than the others. Um, a flood and drain situation, uh, as long as you are, uh, getting to a flood stage where before you've dropped those water contents, it's actually a really good system, uh, especially if your rock wool is, is smaller than, um, uh, traditional for, for drip situations. So, um, that one, as long as, yeah, as long as you don't get lower than your water content, you should be fine. And I guess that, that statement's true for any of those three irrigation types. Um, personally, just for simplicity and, um, and the ability to automate, uh, I, I do like the drippers uh, as soon as possible, just because I can run that on a scheduled system and, and keep an eye on transpiration rates, drybacks, make sure that my irrigations are happening on, on a daily basis without uh, running out of water content, getting below that, say, 35% for rock wool and uh, having a chance of jeopardizing my ability to reach field capacity again due to hydro hydrophobic issues and, and irrigation channeling. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jason. All right. What's happening on YouTube, Mandy? Oh my gosh. What a perfect segue on the topic of irrigation, but for home growers, John wants to know for a home grower who's watering by hand, can you explain what is meant by shots and how I can emulate this without an automated watering schedule? Sure. Uh, hopefully you're using a hand wand 
Um, and if you want to know how big your shot size is and, um, you go run your hand wand for, uh, 30 seconds or a minute and measure how much water comes out. And then, you know, the shot size of that and you can times that. So let's say if I was irrigating for a minute and I got a gallon out of my wand, then I know that my, um, my flow rate is one gallon per minute. And if I need a, a shot size at, uh, you know, 0.1 gallons, then I need to be running 0.1 of a minute. So awesome. Six so seconds. Use a little bit of using the right tools and a little bit of math. I love that. Awesome. Thank you for that question over on YouTube. Um, I think we have a couple of minutes to get to a couple more from Instagram. So back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. I also thank you for that question because I finally know what shots mean. That's so good. I had no idea. And I explains why I egregiously overwatered my can of babies this year. All right, moving on. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we just, we're, we're not trying to give our plants whiskey, so. No, we're not. <laughs> thank you, Jason. <laughs> All right. This is, we've got so many questions. We cannot get to them all. We will save the questions submitted. We're going to keep going until we get through them, y'all. So be patient with us. But um, this seemed like a really, really good one to kind of talk about for a few minutes. So Cam wrote in, hey, I was just wondering if you think that getting a degree in horticulture would be worth it for the cannabis industry. I want to dive in, but I'm just not sure. What would your advice be, Jason? What do you think? You know, um, it's an awesome place to start. Uh, it, anytime that you can get the, the technical, the scientific background, um, as far as plant behavior goes, it, it's going to get you a long ways ahead in where the industry is going. Um, it's also going to open up your opportunities as far as what type of hands-on, um, application that you're using. So anytime that, you know, we're working in, in some genetics, definitely going to need some type of horticulture degree, um, or at least a, a significant interest in learning and, and some type of biological or, or scientific background. Um, yeah, it's one of those interesting situations where I had very little former formal horticulture, um, training, but, uh, I, I have really strong background in, in maths and science. And that's probably why, why you always hear me talking the way I do in this episode. And one of the reasons that, um, I miss my buddy Seth here for, for complimenting from the horticulture side is, is that, uh, uh, I always have learning experience as far as some of the biology that's going on with these plants. Um, and, and so I guess my answer is uh, any type of scientific degree is going to give you a, a lot better opportunity to um, be ahead of the learning curve in where this industry is going. Um, you know, specifically if it is in horticulture, you're going to be learning about really cool aspects of, of a plant. Um, so they're thinking about some of that, um, you know, hormonal balances, if we're talking about auxins, um, any of the, you know, germination strategies, uh, you know, how, how different, um, phenotypes perform, you know, what happens when we see gene mutations, all that type of stuff is going to be covered in, in most, um, horticulture situations. And especially if their, uh, option is for like a controlled environment, horticulture classes. Good luck out there, Cam. I have to say, learning about horticulture, the time that I've been here has just been like amazing. This plant's so incredible. And just the more I learn about it, the more excited I get. So really grateful to be here and good luck out there. Mandy, anything else on YouTube before we go? Oh my gosh, last minute checks. Um, you know, we do have, let's see, well, no, it was just more knowledge sharing. You guys, thank you for all the questions over there. Um, yeah, that's it for over on YouTube. All right. So 
Like I said, we have a lot more questions left. We don't have time to get to them today, but thank you everybody for uh, submitting all your questions. Jason, you killed it. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up for the day? Ah, just uh, stay cool out there. I, I know people are seeing some high temperatures around the country. Hopefully you're, you're keeping your greenhouses and your ACs running and, and uh, um, take advantage of all the light we're getting this summer. Yeah, that's for real. It's wild weather out there. So stay cool. Y'all be safe. And Jason, thank you for holding it down today. Great show. Thank you, Mandy and Chris for another excellent session. And before we go, if you're looking for any Arroyo gear, Arroyo.shop is now open for business. Head over there to get fitted and use code OHL71 to save 20% off. Thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at Arroyo.io. And one of our experts will walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app, drop your questions in the chat or on our YouTube, send us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or DM us. All, we are all on, we are on all the socials. We want to hear from you and we will send everybody in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe and share while you are there. See you next time. Bye everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.